Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, hey, welcome to Page Break. I'm your host, Brian McClellan, coming to you from beneath a winter storm warning here in the mountains of Utah. A quick bit of housekeeping for you. If you missed the Kickstarter for my Glass Immortals novella, Montego, you can now pre-order signed copies from my website for shipping late in May. You should also be able to pre-order the ebook on your favorite platform by the time this episode goes out. My guest this week is author Max Gladstone. Max is best known to fantasy readers for his wonderful craft sequence. He's written extensive serialized fiction with The Book Burners and The Witch Who Came In From The Cold, and has a huge backlist of short fiction published on Tor.com and in various magazines and collections. He's also the co-author of This Is How You Lose the Time War, a multi-award-winning novella. Max and I chat about the state of publishing a decade ago, and how his unique approach to a fantasy series managed to sneak into a chaotic and changing industry. We take a long dive into rereading old sword and sorcery authors, the problems we find within them as educated adults, and the qualities we still love. Finally, we talk about the creative implications of showing off early drafts of a work in progress. Enjoy my conversation with Max Gladstone. Well, Max, you've got a new book coming out. I do. I think I think it'll be out the week after this podcast airs. March 7th. I think that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Very excited. So this is a new craft book, right? It is. Yeah. It's the first craft book um, in a few years now. I did a couple of standalone novels and there was that whole pandemic thing that kind of interceded <laughs> and, and now back in the habit. It's sort of a new direction for the series. The first six books in the craft sequence are this kind of interconnected set of standalone um, mystery kind of fantasy legal thrillers is the way that I used to pitch them. Yeah. Um, you know, sort of postmodern fantasy world with uh, skyscrapers and dead gods with shareholders committees and uh, lich kings struggling to run a water utility, like that kind of thing. Um, and what I found was as standalone as I tried to make all of the books, little bits of plot and continuity started accreting in the shadows and looming over the major plot. So I thought to myself, well, at this point, I think this series and these characters really deserve a big capstone cataclysmic series to resolve all these lingering tensions and push the world into a new register. And that's what Dead Country kicks off. Well, and I wanted to ask you about kind of your technique for those first six books, because I found it really interesting because I, I kind of, in my head, I categorize um, the craft sequence as epic fantasy. It's got a very urban feel to it, mm-hmm. but it, it generally feels very epic fantasy to me. I think that's right, yeah. And epic fantasy, it, in my head, it's it's something where the fans always demand the interconnectedness. They They want these big overarching stories, and somehow you got away with writing standalone set in the same world. 
<laughs> and I, 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 I feel like I wanted like listen to the conversation you had with your editor about that. Well, it's really funny. I think I might have been able to get away with certain things while the editor was kind of uh, looking at uh, at somebody else's paper <laughs> or, or, or whatever. Um, maybe it was also just the way that things kicked off. Um, I was marketing three parts dead. I was trying to place it with an agent and sell it to publishers in the middle of the post 2008 sort of cataclysmic slash and burn landscape of publishing, where um, not only was there uh, the great financial crisis, but then borders uh, disappeared, went bankrupt and sent all of its books back to the publishers on the refundable basis that they technically had them on. Uh, This is getting into a little bit of the weeds. Apologies to the, to the listeners there, but um, it, it touched off this great um, sort of questioning period in publishing. Like, what books can we sell in this environment? What does a po- what does a good series look like? What does a profitable series look like? What shape can an author's career take in a universe where there's suddenly half as many uh, brick and mortar bookstores as there used yeah. to? And this was b- even before the rise of the kind of indie bookstore universe. Um, Amazon was obviously a huge player in book retail at this point already, but it was sort of an ominous presence also. And then if Borders was going under, what else might go under? Was Barnes and Noble next? If that happened, what would happen to the American book market? So there were a lot of real question marks, which meant that a lot of people weren't buying um, anything that wasn't extremely like over the plate, one base hit, single strike kind of projects at that point. Yeah. Which meant that it took me a long time to place three parts dead. Well, I don't know. Uh, it, it can sometimes take a long time to sell a book, but I was shopping it around for you know one year, and um, then I decided to take it off market for a little while, stop looking for agents, and then go back to look for agents about six months later. So it's a long time, and I've always felt that while you're grinding through the big uh, sort of waiting periods in this business best thing to do is to write. So I wrote another book set in the same world. And I thought, well, I don't necessarily want to write a direct sequel to the first book, because if you're going on market with, I have two books of my projected series, and you kind of have to buy both of them. If you love both of them, then great. If you, and what happens if the publisher is like, well, you know, I really liked that first book, but I wish that second book would have gone in a different direction. I don't know. It felt uh, it felt nice to try to make another book that would also serve as an entry point for the series. And so I sat down and wrote another book that would do that. Um, and that was Two Serpents Rise. And it was a lot of fun and opened my eyes to a, a little fun piece of possibility in fantasy world building here. I'm sure you've had this experience, right? That uh, that if you're writing the big single interconnected arc plot, it, the, it can create uh, some. The, the universe can sometimes feel small. You really have to fight to expand the world a little bit. At least this has been my feeling, because that central plot tends to have this gravity pulling things back toward it. Where in the craft sequence, I could write. I wrote one book set in Alt Coulom, and then I wrote another book set in the same economy, you know, the same world, some, like the characters might've heard of one another. 
but a whole different set of characters with a whole different set of primary concerns, kind of another center of gravity. And then I thought, well, I'll write another book in that way. I'm not sure whether it was the most uh, economically feasible plan, but, it, it, you know, or, or, or like the best for, for, um, for, you know, pulling fans along at, at, at core momentum, but it was a lot of fun. And it did mean that by the time I had an offer on three parts dead, it was a two book series. And then you kind of signed the deal and I sent them to serpents rise like the next day. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and then the question was sort of, Oh, well, what else you got? And, and I think my, my fate, better and worse was, was sort of sealed at that point. But it also opened the door to explore a world in this kind of way, rather than trying to do all the world building and the big epic fantasy arc plot at once. Yeah. I could do books that develop characters in different pieces of the world. And then now I'm getting down to the brass tacks of the big fantasy arc plot, which is got me grinning evilly and rubbing my hands together. I don't know. Does any of that feel like uh, feel, feel relevant to your experience or did, did you have that sense? Of- I, I think so. Yeah. You know, cause I've got, I mean, to, to date, I've got basically three trilogies. I've got the two powder mage trilogies and then I've got the sure. uh, glass immortals trilogy, which I'm working on right now. I'm about, Gosh, I mean, I, I, has, I was hesitant to see, say how much through because I keep rewriting huge sections of it. I'm, I'm <laughs> a huge part through book two and uh, and still writing that. And I I find I, I decided when I started Glass Immortals, I was like, OK, so I had I'd written Powder Mage with the idea that I wanted to have the pacing of an urban fantasy so that it moved quickly. I didn't really slow down for world building a lot. I just, I wanted to plow through. I wanted the pacing to move quickly and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. And I, I thought, and I, I really wanted, um, I really wanted Glass Immortals to be more, uh, more emotionally complex, more uh, physically complex with just a bigger plot, a bigger feel of everything. But what you said there about how you kind of have your central plot has this gravity to it. Right. Yeah. And, and I, I, I find myself running, this is why I'm rewriting so much is I find myself running into that a ton where all the training that I've kind of had or given myself as an author to this, day, your muscle memory, really. Yeah. yeah. My muscle memory keeps telling me to say, okay, stay on a very narrow track. Mm-hmm. You plow through, plow through with this plot. But like kind of the creative energy I have with it is like, oh man, this side character is so awesome. I really want to spend like five chapters developing them, but I've got a plot to follow, you know? Like, <laughs> yeah, right. So like I definitely feel myself fighting that kind of gravity. Uh, and sometimes it's good and sometimes it's bad, you know? Like sometimes yeah. it keeps me on track. Like, okay, Brian, you know, this isn't quite working. Focus. And other times you're kind of like, I really want to spend even half a chapter just dicking around with world building. Yeah. And I don't really ever do that in my writing. And, but I, I kind of want to more, but also it feels like. Do it, man. You can. It's allowed. It's, you know, uh, nobody's going to stop you. I know, right? Like, what stops me is me because I, yeah, I, sure. I feel like I kind of came to. I kind of came to like uh, myself as a writer and into my career at a time when everyone, including myself, was kind of rejecting like the 80s, 90s fantasy, right? Yeah. And and so I've still got that kind of as a core of my writerness 
is rejecting this kind of ridiculously overblown fantasy that mm-hmm. meanders in a million different directions. You want to actually tell a series that finishes, tell a story that finishes. Yeah, yeah. Right, right. And it's, you know, and and part of me knows that it's ridiculous to reject that because people still love that, right? Like, Mm -hmm. I mean, look at Brandon, Brandon Sanderson. Oh, yeah, of course. (laughs) Like, that's his bread and butter. And people absolutely adore it. And I love the way he sort of talks about um, uh, having sort of built up a certain amount of respect and patience in his readers over the course of like many, I don't know what I, many solid base hit novels. Like, okay, yeah, I trust you. I trust you. I trust you. And then he's like, woohoo, it's time for six prologues and 17 interludes, buddy. Let's go. And, (laughs) and, uh, and it works really well in way of Kings. I'm just sitting there like, Okay, I don't know how we're on three different continents by this point and like how all these people connect to one another, but I do trust that you're going to pull it all together. That's a, a remarkable currency to have built up. In a oh, yeah. So, so I definitely <laughs> I definitely get that whole thing you're saying about the gravity and and trying to kind of deal with that mm-hmm. as someone who's trying to write epic fantasy. Do you feel like a sort of commercial pull in, in that direction also? You're like, oh, if, uh, if I go this far out and if I let myself be more expansive, that's going to be a challenge on the like packaging and selling the book side of things? Or is that even a thought in your mind? Um, I think that it is definitely an instinctual thought. Yeah. Um, I don't know how much I address it kind of consciously, sure. but... Um, as someone who, especially early in my career, like I was obsessed with numbers and trying to make sure that this is working, you know, financially for me, right? Like, God, yeah, absolutely. That's, that's such a huge part. I've, I've mentioned so many times on this podcast, I have no other talents. This writing thing has to work for me. <laughs> and so, like, I hear you. I hear you. Absolutely. It's a very big thing in my head of like of trying to make sure that if I take risks that they're not too big of risks. Mm-hmm. I don't want to I don't want to just totally shove away. I don't want to spend all that currency, you know, like right. on on me just being kind of bored with something, right? Yeah. Flip side, I mean, law of appreciation, man. You send it out into the world and it comes back or you know, maybe parable of the talents is a less life coachy way to put that. <laughs> um you know, you got you got to put it to work. Uh, that's not just to sit there in the in the money bin and throw up and hit you on the head. <laughs> right, right. You want to try. You want to try to kind of push yourself. Like uh, you, like I think about this a lot in terms of with your readers and with yourself. Can you, you're kind of when you're writing stuff, you're you're trying mm-hmm. to run the balance of making everyone happy. Yeah, you know yourself, the publisher. Right and the readers you know you've got these three different kind of entities and it's really important to keep all three of those in mind on account of i don't know i think i think like especially people who have been sort of socialized in kind of western job culture it's very easy to lock into like oh there's me the writer and there's the publisher agent whatever like the publishing universe which is the boss which isn't really how it works at all but that's just such an, a compelling like uh, cultural form that, that we're sort of trained into from childhood that it's very easy to lock in right. and to forget, wait, actually, no, the publisher is this other thing and I'm kind of my own boss. And then there's the reader over here and it really has to be there for them. It ha- That's the connection that needs to happen. You to the reader, everything else is a facilitation system. 
really great and helpful one. Right. Um, no other way to get, you know, books on the shelves of a college bookstore in a tiny mountain town in Tennessee, which is how I found all of them when I was growing up, you know, but, uh, but, um, but the reader needs to be there in the mind. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It's a, it's a weird place to be at when you, it's so funny because you, you kind of get these writers who become magnificently successful and then <laughs> yeah. they start like, they give writing advice, they give uh, business advice and you're kind of like, dude, your first book sold you know, 10 million <laughs> copies. You have no idea what it's like to yeah. work in the trenches as an author. That's right. You could retire and nobody would care. Like everybody would want more books from you, but you'd have the money. You'd, you're, you're done if you want to, or you can keep writing. Yeah. Yeah. God love them. Like, you know, we, we should all be so fortunate just to be in a situation where we could just put our feet up and, and cash our royalty checks. Um, you know, what a, what a, what a, what a glorious post-scarcity dream to realize. <laughs> <laughs> right. So I, I was kind of curious and this is, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe a little bit in the, in the weeds, but no, Hey, we're, I'm here and I'm here for the weeds, man. I, I, weeding was always what I hated about gardening growing up. So just like go to, <laughs> I, oh, same, right. Oh, so miserable. Um, no, when I was curious about how your experience went, because you, like you said, you had six different books, mm -hmm. um, that were all set in the same universe and only tangentially connected in different ways. Yeah. I'm kind of curious what your sales were like. Uh, and I, you don't have to name numbers or anything, but, yeah. but like no, to sure. give an example for the readers, you know, I have six Powder Mage books. And the way that series normally go are that you've got book one sells X amount, book two sells 75% of, or, or, or probably more likely less of book one. And then on and on and on. So it's like, it's like stairs, you know, you kind of until, until book six is only your biggest fans, right? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> and, and I was kind of curious if you had a similar experience with having six books that were all kind of easy entry points to the universe. Uh, I did. I mean, I think without seeing everybody else's like actual unit sales data, kind of hard to say, but in general, that first book is where people sample and either they're on the train for the rest of the ride or they have a great time and it just takes them a long time to pick up the second book and maybe they never get around to it. It's an example from my own reading life. I read, I read the first Jack Reacher novel, adored it. I think it's a great piece of fiction and has a lot to say about America and it's just a fucking tear of a read. It's so it, it's punchy, it's muscular, it's, it's funny how it's extremely obvious whoever Reacher is going to actually fight in the final act because it's just anyone who's big enough to plausibly fight reacher <laughs> um uh, is gonna have yeah. to be a bad guy because there are just so few of them out there um but uh, anyway it's a lot it, great book i just haven't picked up the second through the 30th not from any lack of super engagement <laughs> obviously i really adored that book it was intense and great um but that's how a lot of people engage with series and yeah. my experience with the craft sequence was that they're definitely three parts dead was definitely spikiest. We also did some aggressive price promotions on three parts dead. And then on the series omnibus, which makes like book for book numbers a little bit hard to um, get clear resolution on, at least to the point where I'd feel comfortable talking about this in a controlled experiment kind of sense. Right. Yeah. But uh, my, my impression generally is that the tail, the book two, three, four numbers, um, especially when you got out to book three, four, five, six, are a bit fatter 
than would ordinarily be the case, proportionally speaking. Um, there are definitely people, book six has a lot of continuity in it, Ruin of Angels, available now as a Kindle monthly deal um, for two ninety nine or something <laughs> like that. But um, so book six has um, Tara Abernathy, who's been the central character for a number of craft sequence novels at that point. It's, it stars Kai Pahala, who's um, the sort of uh, God-building um offshore banking consultant priestess from Full Fathom 5. Um, so those are both returning characters and they engage with a lot of the plot, but there's also this really robust set cast of characters in Agdell Lex or Alakand, the sort of bifurcated fantasy city that's been colonized by a bunch of, you know, squid imperialists who are trying to mind control the population. It, it, it goes, it, it, good, good times, good times. Um, anyway, so... So Ruin has a lot of fresh material in it, and I tried to make the appearances of of Tara and Kai as rooted in that book as possible. Like there are characters who are coming in with motivations and backstories from the previous novels, but really they're about what's going on right here, right now. And that book didn't sell appreciably less than Full Fathom 5 did. Like it's a much smaller percentage drop than I would expect to see. So Flip side of that is I think there's some really is something to the powerful momentum of, you know, I finish Dragonbone Chair and then I need to pick up, uh, God, Stone of Farewell, like immediately. And then I finish Stone of Farewell. And yeah. well, to be honest, I felt, oh, I, I need a little bit of break, <laughs> but I did go the next day online and like <laughs> frantically try to track down the mass market paperbacks of the last two books in the trilogy um yeah yeah so anyway night angel tower isn't it uh, green angel tower to green angel tower green angel tower yeah that's right it's it's funny because it was published as one volume in hardcover but like i i you know i, I didn't realize this must have been where they started doing this uh, in mass market paperback which was a huge portion of like how fantasy was sold when those books came out and there's just no way to get all of two green angel tower in one volume so there are two three inch thick fantasy paperbacks two green angel tower one and two yeah they're massive they're so huge they're so big <laughs> And those books are the things that really spring to mind when you're talking about like expansive sort of wandering fantasy. He, I, it's it's sort of awe-inspiring. Tad Williams is just comfortable having Simon like lost in the woods yeah. for a hundred pages. And it's actually really great. Like it's very easy to make lost in the woods extremely boring. Right. <laughs> Hey, Page Break listeners, Brian here, rudely interrupting myself for a bit of a plug. Making a podcast isn't free, and I'm hoping that you enjoy it enough to pitch in a pittance. To do so, head on over to patreon.com slash pagebreak, where you can toss as little as $3 a month into the tip jar, $5 a month to get the podcast ad-free and early, and $10 a month to hear your name in the credits and feel a smug sense of superiority. You can also buy my books from your favorite retailer or direct from my website. Thanks to everyone who contributes. Now back to me. I think that's what I struggle with in my own writing when I'm trying to kind of pace these things is that I, I was watching last night, I was watching a um, kind of video essay on Miyazaki. Yeah. And it was, he was talking about how Miyazaki loves to let his characters mm. breathe. And you get these moments that are incredibly quiet and I, I don't know, I almost compare it to kind of like 
those Northern European dramas that like will just take uh, like three minutes to just have oh, these yeah. wide tracking shots of the people and the world. And, and I, I actually genuinely adore that kind of thing. Yeah, totally. The, the, the sad, cold detective is like just sitting there for, yeah, yeah, totally. And, and you get that in Miyazaki where he, he kind of pulls back and you see these really, these really lived in worlds of, Everything going on, you know, the wind blowing and the, you know, the windmills in the distance and all that kind of stuff. And I can't seem to do that in my own writing, hmm. uh, even though I adore it as someone, you know, who watches or reads that kind of thing. Yeah, it, it, it's really hard to maintain um, focus and tension and interest throughout a sequence like that in prose. I think this is one of the big differences between prose and animation and comics. Um I find myself thinking about this a lot when I really want to have a, the prose equivalent of a big like splash page. You know the feeling like you turn, you're reading the Fantastic Four, and it's like okay, cool, 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 tiny panels, tiny panels, tiny panels. You turn the page, it's like boom, Galactus. He's just like the whole two page spread is Galactus. Yeah, and you know how I that's one of my uh, like dreams being able to accomplish that i keep having these moments in my books where like characters will wake up and there's a huge fucking space battle in the sky and you know if you were just drawing it just i use in quotes but like yeah you know it's a ton of artist time but the experience for the viewer is one of total cognitive overwhelm like you could sit there and look at that sequence that page rather long enough to understand literally everything that's going on but kind of the fun of it is that uh, sort of eye kick of just how much is present. That's really hard to do in prose where you're fundamentally presenting words to a reader like one at a time or maybe a sentence at a time, even a paragraph if people are really in that sort of expansive speed reading mode. Um, I, I, I think time and attention work so differently. The key though is still like finding ways to anchor interest um, throughout. And, and that, but it's really yeah. tricky and there aren't a lot of uh, you really need to lean on books to try to find the techniques for them. Uh, and, and I'm not sure I've been able to find them myself. Well, and it's, it's, I feel like it's a little harder in like um, kind of your style of writing, like the, uh, mm. like kind of what's popular nowadays is the kind of yeah. uh, third person limited. Um, mm -hmm. And that's what I write in is I've, I've got this narrow view of the world. Yeah. Me too. Largely. Yeah. It's harder to do that. I, I was reading. I've been just kind of on a whim. I picked up uh, this um, uh, this Conan the Barbarian anthology that I've just kind of had sitting around forever, and I haven't read a time. story for like mm -hmm. fifteen years. And um, what struck me about his writing, you know, and it's it's in mm -hmm. that omniscient that he can jump around a whole bunch. But what struck me is that he'll have like these sections of very bare bones action of, you know, whirl of blades, blood spatter, you know, all these people dead. And then he'll like stop for like <laughs> three pages to describe the, the geopolitical kind of setting of these like <laughs> step nomads. Yeah. And, and you're like, mm -hmm. and somehow, yeah. somehow it's gripping. I, I just, it's something about the way he uses language, um, but somehow it's gripping and interesting, even though if someone tried to do that to me in a modern epic fantasy, I would probably just throw the book away. <laughs> I, I'm genuinely baffled. Do you think it's an expectation? You're like willing to give it more, uh, more rope 
because it's Howard, because it's Conan, you're like, I know there's something great here. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that's quite possible that it is my, my childhood brain who absolutely adored Conan. <laughs> um, and, uh, that didn't understand how incredibly racist it was. Uh, oh yeah, yikes! Right, oh geez, right? it's 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 really it's it's really wild. Um, I'll, I'll be reading stuff from back then that I'm just paging along. Like, oh, this is this is like actually pretty interesting in some ways. And then you just get to the, <laughs> I mean, or I'm feeling really gripped. I feel this way with Burroughs a lot. Like reading, you know, the I read some of the early Tarzan paperbacks and you know, last year, and it's like, oh, good stuff, good stuff. Cool. Whoa, yikes! <laughs> right, like I I was reading something screeching breaks like. <laughs> face melting i I read like a a scene uh it was a description or something like that in conan Mm -hmm. a couple of days ago (laughs) and it it was so incredibly horrible like from a modern standpoint yeah that it came around to being almost laughable like i I literally laughed out loud and like yelled at the book you can't say that (laughs) like it's 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 shockingly but like also it's one of those things that like, mm-hmm. reflects the attitudes of the time, right? In to us in an insane way. Um, yeah. Well, it, it like really shines a spotlight on them. Like it's so, it's so um, easy to forget how, um, gosh, it's so easy to forget a lot of things, including just how extremely, um, how like, okay for Burroughs readership it was to have, these like really horrific caricatures of black people generally in the early Tarzan novels. And, um, and and like that, you know, it it sort of tells you some things about Burroughs readership, his intended readership, who he thought might be reading these books. It tells you things about Burroughs, tells you things about the time in which the books were printed, which are like good to keep in mind. I think it's so common to hear for, for people to hear phrases like, Oh, of its time and like well that's sort of an excuse but it's it's actually i think an occasion for profound reflection like what does it mean about the time what does it mean about what else we're carrying forward or has sort of main continued in the genre in various uh cryptological kind of ways to to be surfaced and, and kind of teased apart and engaged with and confronted even to this oh yeah for sure i, I and i think that it's I think it's one of those things that's genuinely quite sure. kind of like important to to kind of understand. It, it helps us contextualize history um, when you when you read the what would be oh, the yeah, pop right. culture of the time. You know, like these these uh, especially these serialized adventures that mm-hmm. you know lots of kids would have been reading, and um, you know maybe soldiers that were deployed, you know, in World War One, World War Two, um, you know, might might be reading this type of thing. It is. It's interesting to reflect on that and kind of understand kind of how the general populace, you know, might have engaged with these issues that today we sure. talk about constantly. And I don't know. It's it's really it's it's kind of fascinating. But it's also like you you're like with like something like you know Conan. You're just like I, mm-hmm. I want to still love this. Like it's there are parts of it like the the writing itself is so incredible in a way that uh you know like i was saying before i just how does he get away with these weird abrupt about faces in the text and all these things i I kind of love thinking about that did you have do you have a theory like when you're paying attention to that experience right of, of sort of reading this 
and then being aware of as on a meta level that we've just shifted between this extremely punchy, almost noirish um, action description and something lyrical and expansive. If it's not just that you're willing to give him more line because he's Howard, um, is there something that's going on in the text itself that's sort of making it work for you? I, I think I think that the pacing is shockingly well done. And and I say this as someone who, who like I said before, I, I struggle stopping to let my text breathe, yeah. to let the world breathe a little bit. I struggle with that. I want it to keep moving quickly. Mm-hmm. And I think that there is kind of a brilliant pacing that underlines all of, uh, especially like kind of the best of the Conan books in that he is able to give us the really punchy things kind of get our adrenaline going, kind of feel really uh, kind of invested in the action of the world. But then it's almost like a, it's a breather, you know, it's like this breather that we just suddenly stop and say, okay, the world, Oh, this world is, it's not just blood and guts. Yeah. I mean, it's mostly blood and guts, but <laughs> this world has yeah, the this, blood and guts has economics. Yeah. <laughs> right. It's got this really complex underlying thought to it. Um, and uh, I don't know. I think that, I think that it works really well. And uh, obviously these would have been, mm-hmm. these would have been serialized, you know, like probably read in little bits at a time. Yeah. I'm not really sure. And, and I'm, I'm not really sure if I had never read it before, if it would resonate with me, if I would enjoy it. Yeah. I mean, I, I've certainly, I certainly found when I was doing my um, sort of Burroughs excursion last year that having probably unbiased, just some suspicion of the text like this is old i know there's going to be some really yikesy stuff in here I, I don't know what to do with it i was surprised by how well i was pulled along and by how and by the particular relation um between action and character work and um and uh, sort of what we think of as exposition or description um in much the same way you're talking about here, uh, you know, Conan will be having a wrestling match with a gorilla and then and then ruminating on learning to read or, or something like that or, or wandering through the forest. And there will be just digressions about how the um, the political system among these magical gorillas works. And what am I trying to say? Um, I think you're exactly right that it is a question of pacing and of stress and stimulus and and response you know you're giving the reader time to recover from sometimes a very visceral experience of intense action adrenaline you're giving the you're sort of encouraging the reader in success to put them in the place of somebody whose life is in danger or who's just triumphantly slain an enemy or or something There, there needs to be a moment for that chemical to like work through work through their body and it brings me in mind, you were mentioning Miyazaki earlier. There's a really great um, tweet that was going around. And of course, because Twitter, who knows whether it will still exist by the time uh, this podcast airs. It was um, somebody making the claim, look, I know we talk about Miyazaki's pastoralism and his sort of beautiful, uh, quiet, contemplative shots. But actually, the man was the best animation director of anime and maybe even cinema. And it just has this beautiful 20, 30 second tight clip from one of the episodes of Lupin that um, that uh, that Miyazaki directed. And it's uh, the the 
the girl in the Lupin sort of trilogy. The, there's Lupin himself, there's the guy with the hat and the beard and the gun, and then there's the like femme fatale character, and it's her. And uh, she's been taken captive by some dudes on an airship, and she breaks out of captivity, runs through the airship, like taking out guys one by one, like body slams two dudes who are firing a, you know, a Gatling gun at somebody outside the airship, uh, picks up a bazooka that they have and then throws it out of the airship to knock out a wing gunner. It's great, beautifully paced animation. And the thing that it got me thinking about was that really these two skills, the skill of being able to write this intense beat for beat, very clear, very punchy action work, and the elegiac, pastoral, much slower tempoed contemplative scene, that it's the same skill set. It's the ability to turn up the tempo and turn down the tempo like a good DJ um, yeah. to, to sort of control the reader's sense of time or the viewer's sense of time. And I think, I, I almost think like the way you described kind of, you know, the way we, we look at like Miyazaki, the, like the action in Miyazaki, like I, I I'm, I'm with you. I love that. Mm-hmm. I absolutely adore the way his characters um, especially the the young people, like the the older kids, younger adults, yeah. the the ones that are like especially in the action. You know, I I love the way they move with such intensity and yes and purpose. And um and I feel like maybe that's what it is with like Conan is like the character of Conan moves with that same intensity and purpose. Like there is yeah. no hesitation. This is a character that springs from action to action with just an absolute fluid gracefulness, uh, both as it's described to us, but also just the way the text hits us. And it, it does, it kind of, it it kind of does make me think of Miyazaki a bit. And similarly, I think the decision to, um, the decision to pan out or zoom out or to move into a different kind of narrative time gives is intentional. Um, I I think that might be the difference that we're looking for that, when yeah. something really intense and actiony has happened on the page, the reader's brain is processing that, is imagining it, is imagining the the other the sort of aspects of it. How do we give them the time to live with that image and its implications and the I don't know chemical energy of it all? Well, one thing you can do in, in film, you can sort of slow down. You can sort of Zack Snyder it all um, if you really want to use the close up, use the slow motion, use the lingering shot on the aftermath. But in prose, you, you can take that. You can sort of ape the cinematic technique. But another thing you can do is give the reader sort of something else to think about while they're still thinking about what you just showed them. And in that sense, you know, yeah. uh, we see... Um, Gosh, I don't know if Homer is necessarily the best example for commercial fiction, but like on the flip side, if you're <laughs> if your uh, books are still being read three thousand years from now, you must be doing something right. Um, <laughs> and, and you know, Homer does this uh, again and again in the Iliad. Will have this short, punchy, sharp, like spear pointed, literally uh, interaction. Uh, some guy gets just skewered to the soil, and then Homer will pop out to a 
sometimes a 50, 100 line description of this guy who's just dead now. He's not going to be playing any much further role in narratives as an active living being. He's just dead. And I'll be like, oh, you, this guy, uh, you know, you came from this town and you have these sisters who are embroiled in a situation with these gods. And like, then you had this difficulty with your family that you finally patched up. And, you know, it's this big, long story. And here you are bleeding yourself to death on a tiny scrap of land outside of Ilium. Gosh, isn't life just fucking weird, man? Anyway, <laughs> there's more battle going on now. <laughs> Let's talk about that. And I think it's something similar. You, you know, you're, you're just sort of forced to live with that last image as the text gets abstracted out to talk about the, I don't know, biographical details or, or economy or cultural aspects of step nomadness. I don't know. Maybe, maybe that's, that's, that's a thought anyway. Yeah. 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 It's, it's something that I, I think that I, I think I struggle with uh, that. And I, I'm curious if other authors struggle with this. Oh yeah. Well, 100%. <laughs> um, I, I, I struggle with, I struggle with giving depth to characters. I know that I'm going to kill, mm. especially if I know they're not going to last very long. Mm-hmm. Um, if, if a character is only on the page for, uh, you know, like literally a page, mm-hmm they're very rarely going to get a good description. Right. Yeah. You know, I'm going to bump them off. They might not even get a name, but you see this in, um, you see this in, in Conan, you see it in some of these others, uh, like you just described, you get a character that is given depth. They're, they're kind of, they're shown to be human. They're shown to be a living, breathing person outside of the war that's happening um, or whatever action is going on. And then suddenly they're dead. And, and I don't know, I, uh, part of me, there's like an economy of writing that I think is what makes me struggle with it because I want right. all of the writing to have a purpose to the narrative, driving it forward. But also, like in these cases, it give makes the world deeper and more um, alive because we know this person that just got bumped off. Yeah, absolutely. Which also then has a purpose in the narrative, right? Uh, just to sort of trouble that tension that you're, you're, you're um, introducing there that knowing that this is a world populated by real living, breathing characters who have their flaws, weaknesses, loves, passions, pasts, suddenly makes it feel, for me, when that happens for me with my own writing and with a book that I'm reading also, a little bit less like a video game and a little bit more like something that I'm just suddenly passionately involved in. That might or might not be the effect that you're going for in, in any given moment, that like one's going for in any given moment. You know, I can see if the intent is to write a sort of light, breezy, slapstick, ultra-violent thing, that there's a tendency to just kind of like, oh yeah, there are a bunch of guards here and they all get mown down by Thordar the Barbarian or, or, or whatnot. And a, a sort of, he's drunk and he just wants to kill some folks. Uh, but on the flip side, I think of, um, I mean, Abercrombie does this and, and Cinema Quentin Tarantino does this, where you both have that really dismissive, casual, it's a universe in which people often have a very casual and dismissive attitude toward human life. And it's made yeah. all the more real and compelling by the fact that you believe that most of these minor characters actually do exist and are uh, people to die. <laughs> um I feel it too, though. I, you know, I sometimes worry that it makes me pull my punches because I find myself fiddling with character on the page, you know, okay, it's, you know, here's a, this happened to me when I was writing Last Exit, which has sort of some horror novel vibes to it. Um, 
here's this hotel manager who is there because there needs to be some hotel person who's present, right? Like we have these characters who stopped at a hotel to meet and they're aware that they're on the run for some, from something, but they don't know how close to them it is. They don't know what their next plan is. They're kind of coming back together after a long absence. And so, so the hotel, there has to be somebody from the hotel who's present to like represent that institution, be a contact point for them. Um, but that guy isn't going on the rest of the adventure with them. I kind of knew that. And he suddenly had a lot of character for me as, you know, he's this, uh, he's this sort of wonderful dweeby kid who's like trying to figure his stuff out. Like, and, you know, he's working in a, in a sort of narrative turn, very, that made him very relatable to me. He's like kind of working at the front desk in this hotel outside of his small town. Um, largely because between the hours of midnight and 3 a.m., there's a lot of time to be typing on his fantasy novel while nobody's coming in. So, you know, like that kind of situation. Yeah. And so this guy's gonna, you know, gonna get, well, when the monster comes, this guy doesn't have a, just a lot of shelf life, right? This type of character. Right. But it was so hard to see, to not like give him an out, to let him take a stand instead. And, um, and like, have his spitting into the eye of the devil kind of moment as opposed to finding some way to just save him or like cushion him from that. It was some of the hardest writing I had to do in the whole book. Yeah. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection. Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I, I, I had a, a character that I've been working on the, for about the last week uh, for one of the points of view. And I'm like, okay, this character, uh, I'm, I'm developing them specifically um, to kind of, I, I want their death to be a, uh, to be a little bit of a punch. Yeah. And then like, like, like I, I do a lot of my like pondering about these things in, in the hot tub <laughs> because I have no other distractions. I can't hold a phone or anything. And I can, that's great. And, and two nights ago I'm sitting in the hot tub and I'm like, and I realize I can't kill this guy. I love him. Aww. Like, like he's great. Like everything about him is so like, he's so fun to write and put in the text. Yeah. And, and even though it's a character that I kind of developed to maybe die. I'm just like, I can't do this. But yeah. then I know that there's going to be a moment at which I'm going to have to finally make that decision. And I literally, at this moment, I don't know if this character is going to live or die because I love them deeply, but also they kind of, they're a character for a purpose 
and I, it's it's such a yeah it's it's tough man it's tough you do you fall in love you know you, they always say kill your darlings and that is so much easier to say than do <laughs> oh gosh yes 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 um i i have a whole thing about that piece of advice which is uh, i think often not great but um Dalton Trumbo is the guy I was thinking about, the author of uh, of uh, Johnny Get Your Gun and um, also the screenwriter behind Roman Holiday and a bunch of other films. Um, there's a great biopic about him yeah, yeah. Um, with uh, Brian Cranston, I think, uh, playing Trumbo. Yeah, I, I watched that during during kind of... Oh, okay, okay, yeah. That was just, you were talking about work, yeah. working in your hot tub and I was thinking of all those scenes of like, <laughs> the bath, you know, right? Dalton Trumbo in his bath with his typewriter. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's one of the, when I was young and was just starting to uh, GM tabletop role playing, I went to an older guy who was, um, who had GM'd a really awesome Star Wars campaign that I was in. And I said, well, I have these characters. We've had a handful of sessions. We're having a great time, but like, how do you motivate people? How, like, how how did you do the magical thing that we were all doing on the table? He gave me some of the best writing advice um, that I've ever heard, but it's really hard to follow. And one of the pieces was, and this this sort of specific to tabletop role-playing, but you can also see how it applies pretty well to uh, to any other form of fiction, is, uh, okay, so the, you have the party, right? So figure out what they're not good at. Like, find some role that they can't fill. So let's say there's nobody on there who's a starship mechanic, or there's nobody, there's no, um, there's no hacker, or there's no thief, or something like that. And give them an NPC, like a helpful NPC, who's just really good at this one thing, so they don't need to worry about it. They will love this character. And then you give them for about an act. And when you're ready to make the sort of big boy pants time shift, kill that character. They will not stop until the end of the series. They will just keep going because they they want, you know, that's you've taken something from them and they want it back or whatever. And like I had a really hard time. I didn't even actually I set up that character. I didn't actually kill them because simply the threat, the just like applying, getting them kidnapped for half an half a an adventure was enough to entirely solidify in the players' minds. Oh, those are the bad guys. Whatever the hell they're up to, we need to stop them and on this deep subliminal like level. And it, that that kind of thing. Whenever you get investment in a character, that's that's gold. That can be um, that's that's the I don't know currency or pressure that drives narrative, whether you kill them or not. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's it's interesting. Like the the whole. Um, the killing characters thing, like I, I find, um, I find as I kind of get older and I write more and more that I want, and and this is kind of a reflection I think of of me as a person and kind of exploring the life I live in, is that I want to examine more and more kind of moral yeah. complexity with my books, um, but I also find that getting in the way of me yeah. writing a fun book, like there's there very quickly becomes a point at which I'm trying to explore a moral complexity and, Oh wait, I've been doing this for three chapters and it is boring. As crap. <laughs> yes. Surely somebody needs to come in with a gun sooner or later. Right. Like you try to like, like, okay, like does this character stop and ponder before slitting this guard's throat mm-hmm. or is the violence. And I think this is something that I really, this is why I think I've been obsessed with the, Conan the Barbarian mm-hmm. with with kind of that uh, that 
fluidity of action that you get from Miyazaki yeah. is that the characters don't hesitate. They they spring into action. And I, I feel like something maybe that's making the new series I'm writing take so long more than I did with Powder Mage um, is that I keep wanting to stop and explore moral complexity. But I think that especially, and, and that makes me fight my own nature of having characters that move yeah. fluidly through action. And and, and man, and it is hard to find what tightrope I want to walk. Um, I mean, that's a really that's well. So, what what do you find yourself reaching for, or, or in what ways do you find yourself sort of slowing down and getting into the moral complexity? Do you really want the character to be there? Like, I got the guard, I've got the knife to his throat. Like, should I reconsider my left life choices? Is that the moment where you want the the questioning to happen? Or do you find the interstitial spaces sort of filling up with these like moral questions? Was it right to cut that guy's throat? I, I do think mm-hmm. that it is slowing down my action. It, it's making me stop. And funny enough, like, cause I've like, especially in this new world that I've been working on, this is a world in which life is cheap. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's meant to reflect a far more modern version of the Roman empire, mm-hmm. which is, this kind of yeah life is cheap and you know sex and power is all that matters kind of thing um that's the vibe i want to give across but i also want characters that that are trying to find a moral center in this world sure and and striking that balance um in a way that doesn't slow everything down and kind of bore the reader that man i i genuinely find it really tough yeah i hear you no, it's something I've been struggling with a little bit too. So um, Dead Country is the first in this sort of more classically epic fantasy, like book two is a sequel to book one, book three is a sequel to book two, kind of um, sort of driving central plotline structure. And so I've just been revising book two. Book one is this very tight story about Tara Abernathy, the main character of Three Parts Dead, she's sort of found her way as a, as a necromancer working for this big city church, you know, back east. And she's going home for her father's funeral um, to this tiny town that basically ran her out on pitchforks when they found out that she could do magic. Um, and she's going back for her father's funeral and she's going to end up uh, trying to defend the town against this sort of threat that's coming in from the Badlands, from this sort of magic distorted mutated wasteland out, out to the west um and also training a young girl who she finds who has some of the same powers that she did so like it, it starts with this sort of tight core um and by the second book the scope has expanded pretty dramatically um we're starting to verge up on global stakes and people are having these real questions of you know how much do i want to you know is this the right way to try to change the system of the world um, should I be trying to stop these people or trying to overthrow the way that almost everything works anyway? Um, is there, am I taking the right actions? Am I, is this, is the particular kind of violence I'm engaged in, is this justified? And I, I found myself also um, slowing down a lot in action sequences, especially you have characters who meet for the first time in sometimes several books who represent, who have complicated, long relationships with one another. And if they're meeting at sword point, you really want to zoom in, right? You want, I, I find myself wanting to explore the full tension of that meeting. Yeah. And it was uh, not helped by the fact that for a number of reasons, I've been writing longhand uh, recently, uh, sometime during the pandemic, whether it was politics or anxiety or whatever. I just found that 
staring at the computer screen was a good way to ensure that writing was not getting done on a regular basis. But I, also parenting is part of this. Like, I don't know. I just needed something that was as simple as I have a notebook, I have a pen, let's go. Um, that's really great for having characters ruminate. It's great for opening up space, actually, because you can follow it, it, your, my hand anyway, works so much more slowly that it gives my brain time to kind of run ahead of the composition yeah. to the point where thoughts have a tenser, like more integrated link between them. One sentence might not, might, uh, be a stronger and more logical expansion or shift of direction from the idea of the previous sentence rather than uh, another image to present to the movie in the viewer's mind, if that makes any sense. So that meant that the writing could get very discursive and very expansive and really funny and philosophical and weird, which in scenes between action, really, really great. In practice, what it meant on revision was that I'd have to go into these extremely tight action beats and pull out sometimes 1,000 words, 2,000 words of characters thinking about the implications of their actions uh, or of what's about to happen. And then what I found really worked is pulling those and then moving them like 3,000, not 3,000, like 30,000 words earlier in the book so that they could instead be context and tension setting that was then present in the reader's mind when they got to that final moment of confrontation rather than slowing down the action. So it created some of that same um, sort of pulsing tension that you're talking about. You get like context, 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 collapse, context, 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 pressure, collapse. Um, And I don't know. One of the yeah. glories of all this is the uncertainty. I know that it feels good when I read it now. Uh, I really hope it feels good when readers read it too. <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah. That's something you're always kind of like struggling with is that like, I like it yeah. at this moment. Right. Maybe I won't in a month. Maybe my readers won't. I don't know. And also, you know, you know it so well. So it's, this is the, I mean, how do you, how do you wrestle with this? Cause I, I think you, you do like multiple drafts and you get sort of really into the iteration on this too, right? This is, this is my sense. I, I find that, um, I find that trusting, I, I find I've done this enough that if I trust my instincts, things are going to go the best. Oh, that's good. That's a much more sensible and like sane and humane way to treat yourself than the way I go with it. <laughs> <laughs> because but the thing is, is that I don't always trust my instincts. And this is something I found uh, over the last couple of years, especially that if I am shooting an email off to my editor or even w- uh, printing something off and handing it to my wife, that that means that I have so little confidence in what I'm writing that I should definitely scrap that thing uh, uh, interesting. and start over because... Because I, I'm good enough at this. I know that I'm good enough at this, that my instincts, if I'm questioning it, there's a reason I'm questioning it. And I need to, mm-hmm. I need to suss that reason out before continuing, because otherwise I'm just writing stuff that'll get pitched. Um, and so if I'm, if I'm asking other people for their opinions, it means that I have an underlying concern that I haven't figured out yet. And that instead of asking for those opinions, I should just stop and figure out what mm-hmm. that concern is. That's a really, that's a, that's a great level of trust to have in your own, uh, you know, instincts and responses. Do you ever run into a situation where you're like questioning those? Like I, I often find myself, um, 
this isn't exactly something that I that I that I want. But um, when I was fencing very regularly, there's it, it's often helpful if you can to have a coach who's there to watch your bouts. Even another fencer at a comparative comparatively the same level, very helpful because you can be on the strip convinced that you have a comprehensive sense of what's going on, including like your own body mechanics. Like, of course I'm extending properly before I lunge or I I don't know. And you get deep. Of course I'm, of course I'm lifting my foot or of course I'm backing up as quickly as I can. Um, and, And you have a sense of what the other person is doing. And you think that that is also correct, but you might not actually have a complete and comprehensive sense of, of, of what's going on there. Having a separate perspective, you, somebody can say, oh, the reason this guy's the reason this guy's always hitting you is that he's actually got this extremely uh, wonky extension that's pretty that's non-standard. And if you figure out how to exploit that, which is to say like, okay, actually he's sort of putting his arm out, pulling his arm back, and then putting it out again. So your initial parry is kind of slipping off and is not being particularly effective. And then he's getting you on functionally this extremely wonky disengage but if instead you don't bother with that first extension you don't parry you just continue with point and line onto his wrist you'll get him when he remises you'll get him when he pulls his arm back and you'll turn the light on every time and then if you can execute on that plan you win the bout and if you fail to execute on that plan you you know don't always it doesn't always turn out for the best but having that extra perspective somebody who's not inside your head who's not like enmeshed on the on the strip can sometimes be pretty helpful i i absolutely agree i think that like because i always have like my wife always reads my finished manuscripts i'm obviously my editor does as well Mm -hmm. um but like i find personally that that is incredibly helpful for a finished manuscript it's amazing ah yeah i see that yeah but trying to hand someone a scene or even an act. Oh yeah. 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 That's a really good point. That, Mm -hmm. that doesn't work for me because they don't know everything else that's going on in your head. They don't know the plans that you have for the next scene. They don't know what you're setting up or what you, they haven't seen through Mm -hmm. the things that you've promised on the page. And so they don't know if you've succeeded or failed and they can only give you a very narrow kind of, outside perspective. And that's the thing is that's one of the reasons why I I think I've realized that handing my wife Mm -hmm. a chapter is almost always useless because I'm a good enough writer that that chapter is, she's almost always going to say, yeah, this is really good. But there's an instinct in my brain that's saying the thing that I'm trying to set up isn't quite working, but she can't help me with that because she doesn't know what I'm trying to set up. (laughs) Yeah. I see what you mean now. Yeah. And I think I, I, I come to think I don't really do that. I don't send people chapters really hardly ever once or twice. Actually, this happened with Dead Country. I was experimenting with uh, writing it in a kind of the way that I used to write forum fic, right? Like a sort of forum role playing fic where, you know, I was just sending the chapters for the first half of the book to a friend as I was writing them. And I was like, I'll just write these short chapters once yeah. a day and then kick them out. And then the friends get like explicitly, you know, respond back if you're if you're jamming on it. And if not, like, that's cool. Don't worry about it. And at some point, I even disconnected from that at that uh, just to, you know, go deep on my own. Um, but in terms of like, help me fix this chapter. Yeah, I don't do that very much. Um, and I, I think it might have something to do with 
you're feeling, uh, not that I had reasoned it out in quite that way, that if there's something wrong, I'm the one who's best positioned to know what it is. Um, sometimes, you know, yeah. s- once or twice, I think I've seeded like my question to somebody. Like, I, I think that this is slow. Do you think that this, do you also think that this is slow? <laughs> or, um, yeah. Or if there's a specific subject that I don't know as much about as I wish to, or there's, a, and there's a subject matter expert, that's a case in which I'll sometimes pass things along. Um, the one point where I do solicit some outside feedback is these days when I'm, when I start writing something and I'm looking for the voice, you know, I'm looking for that sort of takeoff moment. Um, I will sometimes send it to, you know, to my agent or show my wife, um, to like, you know, kind of on the, would you read more at this point? Uh, yeah, yeah. Sometimes that's because I have a distrust. Yeah. That uh, really sometimes that's because I have a distrust of what I'm yeah. doing. Sometimes it's honestly just this like uh, sort of sneaky back of my head, like, oh yeah, I'm kind of jazzed about this. Like I want to show it to you so that it really exists yeah. on the page and in your head. Um, but that early point where you're like trying to tell whether you've found a, a, a rich load of ore. Yeah. No, and I, I absolutely, there are moments at which I genuinely just need my ego stroked a little. Oh yeah. <laughs> and, and so, so like I'll, I'll hand a chapter to my wife. Mm-hmm. knowing it's dynamite and knowing she'll like it just so that she'll take 20 minutes, read yep. it and say, yeah, this is really good. And then I get that little, I get that little, like, yeah, yeah I knew it. So good. And, and that I will do. Yeah. This is something we don't get. It's something we don't get in the, in the prose fiction universe. Like uh, a couple of times I've worked on TV and kind of more collaborative scripting uh, processes it's so much fun to, well, it's the tabletop gaming thing. You know, you throw out an idea and if it connects with the other people at the table, you see it instantly. There's like a body language change. People sit up, somebody laughs and it, you throw out another idea and, and it doesn't quite land. And okay, maybe that's not the best version of the idea. You can sort of workshop it a little bit to find one. But it's, it's such a difference to be sitting alone with your thoughts and think like, oh, yeah. Like, can I beat that? Can I find a better version of that idea? You have to be the one who's listening, being honest about your own reactions, and then challenging yourself to go that next step or yeah. you know, the next mile. Yeah, that's so true. Well, well, hey, I have uh, I have kept you for quite a long time. No worries. Um, but I uh, a pleasure. I, I like to I like to finish off each of these episodes by asking everybody a uh, quite a left field question. What's the last thing that you ate that blew your mind? Last thing that I ate. That's a really good question. The challenge is we're like still, we're, you know, with a toddler and everything, and, and you know, we're we're still cooking at home a ton. So there's no like restaurant meal. It's just yeah. sort of, for, you know, for a, a lot of my adulthood, I've been making like big uh, pots of lentils and dals and and things like that in uh, sort of Indian cooking in a, a slow cooker, like a, a sort of pressure in, in, in a crock pot kind of situation. And, yeah, yeah. you know, here's some, so you make like sog paneer by you put a bunch of spinach in and all the other spices and everything. And you just set it to stew. And that's great for when you're going into an office every day, you can set it for eight hours and kind of forget it and come home and it's perfectly fine. Um, after a life of being terrified of the pressure cooker, like just convinced that it was going to explode on me, I finally... Uh, you know, confronted the the darkness of my shadow and was like, screw it, I'm going to learn how to pressure cook things. 
and set up the pressure cooker and made sog in the pressure cooker in like 10 minutes with a recipe that I just picked almost at random off of the internet. And Jesus, I like <laughs> it's, it was such a difference having the intensity of the heat and the toasting for the spices, getting it all done in one pot, getting it done in half an hour as opposed to needing to figure out how you're going to plan your entire day around it, throw some paneer in there. It was yeah. tremendous. Um, and I don't know, it felt like a, a, a revelation. So <laughs> now that's great. I've got a couple of friends that ended up kind of uh, swearing on, on like their Instapots, you know, kind of coming out of the pandemic mm -hmm. uh, lockdown times. And uh, it's something I still haven't done. Uh, I, 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 so this is just a stovetop pressure cooker of the, of the like whistling and rattling variety. But I think you could do exactly the same thing on an Instant Pot. I, you know, I have an Instant Pot and I've not used it. And I think that might just be sheer cussedness at this point because, you know, I have a lot of friends who similarly are just talking about how great they are and how easy they make everything. Yeah. It's part of me. It's like, but I want to caramelize. But of course you can caramelize them in an Instant Pot. I don't know. So maybe I'll like, Two or three years from now, I'll be using it, and then you'll have me back on the show, and I'll be like, oh, my gosh, Brian, I have to tell you about the instant thought. Well, and it's interesting because, like, we live in this age of uh, of, of, of a billion yes. kitchen implements, you know? <laughs> like, we have a thousand different tools that we could have. And, I mean, I know that I have, like, mm -hmm. five different things that I literally never use in my kitchen, just taking up space. Only five? You're doing great, man. <laughs> but occasionally... <laughs> That's because everything else gets thrown out. Oh, all right, yeah. uh, but occasionally you run into something and you're like, this thing just entered my rotation yeah. of I'm going to use this all the time. Yeah. And, and I do love that. That's, that's such a good feeling. Like I, I, about it two years ago, I, I got a panini press Ooh. and I kind of in the back of my mind, I was like, I'm spending too much money on this. I'm going to use it once and forget about it. Nah. And you know what? I use that thing probably yeah. two times a month, and that makes it worth keeping because it makes such mm -hmm. good, like toasted cheese sandwiches, and uh, like I, I love that kind of thing. That sounds that sounds wonderful for me. That would be the. Uh... I got a carbon steel wok kind of early in the pandemic. I had like a, a knot. Ooh. I had a sort of too fancy wok that we'd gotten as a, as a wedding present. It was like heavy and it worked really well, but like, you know, insofar as it went, but I couldn't do any stir frying or anything with it. Got the carbon steel for, I don't know, like 20 bucks or something. Got it seasoned up properly and sat down and did a stir fry. And it was, it felt like I was, on cloud nine I was like tossing stuff up in the air and catching it behind the back it's just a really wonderful thing <laughs> and that it feels like you've unlocked a whole new skill tree or something when that, when something like that connects right <laughs> oh it it totally does i love that that was fantasy author max gladstone thanks again to max for coming on to chat you can find links to max social media down in the show notes you can find me, as always, at brianmcclellan.com. Special thanks to James Sutter for music and Tom Bishop for production. If you'd like to support the podcast, head on over to patreon.com slash pagebreak or buy my books in ebook, paperback, or audio. You can also get signed copies of my books direct from my website or swag from my Redbubble store. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave a review. If you're listening to this via Patreon, please stick around for a bonus chat during the epilogue. Special thanks to Elijah, Ivor Gullickson, James Clark, Jennifer Johnson, 
Jason Nall, Kyle Anderson, Sexton Hardcastle, Taylon, Brian, Will Lebelski, and Bradley Thornhill for their backing on Patreon.